Well, hello. This is going to be Course Studies Week 2 of Ruth. And um, I want to begin with prayer because that's a good thing to do. Lord God, we come to you and we're grateful for your um, your goodness to us, the fact that you're providentially working in each of our lives for your glory, and which just so happens to be for our good because we're in Christ and it's wonderful to behold. And I just ask that you would be with us as we look at this precious chapter two of Ruth and just be encouraged by what it has to say for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. All right. So you see the notes there. We got those around. Just to recap a little bit. Actually, I got a whole page here. It says Ruth 1 revisited. <laughs> um... I actually am putting new material in here, so this isn't just a recap of last week. This is another way to think about what was said last week. Just to revisit, if you remember, towards the end of Ruth 1, Naomi had that outburst cry. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. She like voiced her bitterness at all that had happened to her. And we went through that last week. It's pretty clear what happened to her in the first five verses was a lot of bad stuff. But, well, and we can sum it up. There's two things she was missing. Two things, if you want to just sum it up. With all the circumstances of being widowed, being in a foreign land, having her sons die on her after childless marriages for ten years. And they're married to Moabite women of all types of women who weren't considered the uh, cream of the crop at that time. There was two things she was missing, and these are the two things that kind of dominate the whole book, the whole story. And I've listed them there. These are basically the writer's words, bread and rest. There was no bread in the house of bread until God put some back there and drew her to come back. And I'll retitle that need as provisions just in general she had a lack of provisions she was hungry and actually she had no place to live either at the time and the rest the other thing she was missing is rest what she called rest when she prayed for Ruth and Orpah she wished that they would have God's steadfast love and they would have rest which what she meant by that is a secure future. Get back to an inheritance. It includes it included marriage and her thinking, but it was more than that. It was having a land that you can call your own, having sons and daughters you can call your own, and having an inheritance to pass on to the next generation, which I'll call security for the future. So basically there's two things that Naomi desperately lacks in chapter one that she's bitter about because it doesn't look like God has given her this stuff. 
She's missing bread, and she's missing, she's missing provision, and she's missing security. And she prayed that for the other two girls, said, you, got, you go back and you'll get that because the Lord's really good, and he'll, he'll give you that, but he's not giving it for me. So stay away from me. But actually, the way the author writes it, it's pretty clear. He's kind of like saying, this is what she thinks. But you should see that there's something else going on in the background. The Lord has visited his people and given them bread, and she's going to get it. And at the very end of chapter 1, it says, at the beginning of the barley harvest. This little nice little phrase there, kind of like, like a teaser about what's about to come. There's barley at harvest. That's bread. They make bread from barley and wheat and other things. But God's providing bread. And she doesn't know it, but he's also going to provide security. And that's going to come through this daughter-in-law that's clung to her. And at this point, Naomi thinks she's just a burden. But actually, the security is going to come through her. It doesn't know it yet. In chapter 2, we're going to see these same two needs come out, but they're going to suddenly be met. There's going to be, oh, there's lots of bread. Oh, there's actually a promise of security coming. And God's, his providence is going to kind of flip the tables on Naomi. By the end of chapter two, she's going to be a different woman when she sees, oh my goodness, God actually is giving me bread and he actually is giving me security and her whole outlook is going to change. So that's kind of a summary of where we're going with this, or where the author is taking us in chapter 2. Another note I wanted to make about Naomi, a way to Naomi is to think of her as the female Job. That comes as, as a surprise to some people. Naomi, Job, Job had a really, really bunch of bad stuff happen to him, and they wrote 40 plus chapters about it. Naomi, they just write five verses about it. But if you dig in, like we did last week, and you think about what happened, Naomi had a lot of the same issues that Job did, and I listed some of them there. She, Job lost provisions all in one day. Chapter 1, you can read about that in Job. He lost everything he owned. Job lost his children also in that same day. Job chapter 1. Naomi lost hers. Job had friends come and comfort him. And actually, Naomi, when she returned to Bethlehem, has the whole city come out to comfort her. So she has friends that she's not all that keen on at the moment. But And Job's friends were good for a little while until they opened their mouth. And then it became a big... If you've read Job, you know what I'm talking about. And I know in a few months... Dale's going to take us through Job in this very setting here. So I'm not, I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but I'm just saying, compare Naomi. She's like a female Job. There's a whole lot of allusions to this story. She's another one who's experiencing very bitter, bitter statements. Job actually says, declares his bitterness too. I listed two references where he clearly says that he himself is bitter with what God has done. So he and Naomi are kind of in the same place. And the other, probably the biggest thing to take away, that I want you to take away from this, is Job, it's clear from the book of Job that it wasn't his fault that all this happened to him. 
It wasn't his sin. And that was the big battle he had with his friends. The friends are saying, you must have sinned. And he's saying, no, I didn't, and all that. Now, he certainly had sinned by the end of all that discourse, and he had to repent of his attitude and towards his friends. But the original cause of his suffering was not his fault. It just happened to him, and he didn't know why. Well, you can say the same about Naomi, or at least I would suggest you think that way about Naomi. The author doesn't explicitly blame Naomi anywhere in the text. It just lists all this happened. And if you think about it, the stuff, a lot of the stuff that was bad, moving to Moab, marrying Moabite women, that probably wasn't her choice. She was submitted to her husband. He probably, if, if anyone's to blame, perhaps her husband is, perhaps. But the, the, the author doesn't blame him either. Just saying, Naomi, all this bad stuff happened. She's bitter. She's like Job. The point of, of Ruth isn't to cast blame. It's not to go, oh, what did Naomi do wrong? If she had not done that wrong, then that won't happen to me if I, if I learn her lesson. Of, that's not the point of Ruth at all. It's to find where the sin is and root it out and repent of it. Because Ruth doesn't even try to do that. It just says this, all this bad stuff happened. Naomi's very bitter. And she's kind of in this situation that's probably not her fault. Yet, despite that, just like God did for Job, he does for Naomi. He providentially comes in and restores everything better than it was before. That's what's going to happen in Ruth. So it's really a story about God's providence. God's the hero of this story. Naomi said he's against me. He's the enemy. He's the antagonist. But he's actually the hero. And that becomes, starts to become more clear in this text here. So. And then I, I listed also there my definition of providence from last week, more as a reference, because I keep using the term providence, and I'm going to continue to use the word providence. Providence is God's activity as he guides and governs his created order. That's what uh, one of the commentators I am referencing used, David Atkinson. And uh, that's a quote from him. And then also I would just say this is more my summary of how I would say it, God's wise guidance of his created order to accomplish his good purpose for his glory. That's more Piper-esque, but Piper didn't say that. But it's, I use a lot of Piper terms because he's quite the influence. Providence would be his choice, too. He loves that term. He wrote a huge book recently on that, by that title. So I'm going to continue to use providence, which encompasses God's sovereignty and the activity that accomplishes his, his sovereignty for his good purposes and his people. And Ruth 2. What I've done to title Ruth 2, if you remember last week I called it Providence and Bitter Circumstances. So a lot of bitter circumstances, yet God was providential to Naomi. Chapter 2 is a totally different situation. It's a much happier situation. Chapter 1 is kind of a downer. Chapter two, you read chapter two and you can't help but smile. It goes so, it's so night and day. Providence is at work and now things are like, wow, things are starting to, ooh, this is fun. What's going on? This is, this is interesting. This is not only interesting, this is, I want to see what's going to turn out here. 
a lot of interesting things happen. But the key word about providence in chapter 2 is this little word called happens. I think it's in Ruth 2.2 is where it pops up, where she happens upon the field of Boaz. Happens. And the author actually, the way he writes it, it's almost like he's winking at you like, yeah, really, happens. Yeah, right. Happens. You read it, you tell me if this just happened. But God has providence as life happens. And not just in bitter circumstances, but in everyday circumstances. As you're doing life, God's providence just happens every single day. Normal things. Because this is actually a very a chapter that starts out normal, seems normal. Of course, by the end of it, you're going, that wasn't normal. That was providence. Something big happened in this normal, go out to work in the field, gather some food for myself, and wow, God accomplished something at the end of the day. It just happened, though. So providence, as life happens, is, is what I'll title this. And let me uh, read it like we did last time. And I'm, I guess the reason I'm reading and not letting you all read it is so the recording can pick it up clear because if you listen to some of these and I'm having somebody in the back row talk, nobody, everybody's going, what, what? They can't hear. So I'll just read it. Now, Naomi, from the ESV. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the author starts out by introducing a whole new character, Boaz. Brand new, hasn't been mentioned before. And what's special about Boaz? Well, the ESV and most translations take that first word relative. They translate it relative when in fact it's not what it means. What it really entitles is a friend. Someone who, the word is actually, the Hebrew word is a knower. Somebody who knows you well. Boaz has someone who knows Naomi well, and Naomi knows her well due to her marriage into the family. And then the very next phrase is, he's of the clan of Elimelech, which speaks to the fact he's also a relative. So there's two phrases there. One is basically saying, he's got a relative of Elimelech, but he happens to be a friend. That's the more important thing. He's not just any old relative. I mean, we all have relatives who we wish weren't our relatives. <laughs> Boaz is not one of those guys. Boaz is a friend. He's, he's, he's someone who would have Naomi's best interest in mind based on their previous experience. So chapter 1 is introducing Boaz not just as a relative, but as a friend. And then it describes him also as a worthy man, which is two words in Hebrew, not one. And it's used elsewhere in the book of Judges, especially, but also in 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, in 1 Chronicles, and all over the place of mighty men of valor, a mighty man of valor. It's normally talking of a person who you would rely on to go into battle and beat up God's enemies. So Boaz is actually described the same way, however, in this context, 
obviously there's no military thought going on. So it has more of a, he's highly respected and he's a man of integrity within the community of Bethlehem is what it's speaking of. He's worthy. He's thought of highly. It also probably speaks to the fact he's got means, he's got wealth. And it also is, is as we will see, it's hinting that he's going to probably have good moral character, and that will become obvious in a few verses. He has very good moral character. So he's a worthy man in the sense that he's a mighty man, and he's just valorous. He's, he's strong and integrity, doing the right thing. So Boaz is just introduced kind of out of nowhere to set up what the author's going to do next. There's this friend out there called Boaz, who's a, he's, he's a good man. And the other thing about him being a mighty man of valor, it also speaks to the fact, remember, Naomi said, I went away full, but I've come back empty. Well, this guy is full. <laughs> He's full. Naomi may be empty, but there's, this friend of hers is full, and his fullness is going to become a blessing to her ultimately. So it's kind of just landing out there. There's this worthy man, friend, friendly to Naomi, who's just out there in, in Bethlehem. So, back to the storyline, Ruth. Um, she's going to decide all on her own to go to work in a foreign country, not knowing she's a Moabite. It even says that. Notice it says that. And Ruth the Moabite, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Naomi, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, the guy that was the mighty man full of goodies that would be a blessing to her and Naomi. He just, she happens to go there. So that's the providence. But before I talk about the providence, I want to talk about Ruth's activity in this. And I title this as Ruth Takes a Risk. This is actually Piper-esque too. Piper likes this term and I, I'm going to use it. I'm going to run with it. She takes a risk. And it's not obvious that she takes a risk here. It was obvious in chapter 1 she took a risk. That's obvious. It's like she's got a comfortable home and she's leaving that home for complete unknown. Has no idea where she's going, right? That's a huge risk, just clinging to Naomi and her God without knowing what lies ahead. This is not as clear. This sounds like, oh, she's just hungry and she's going out looking for food. But I'll, I'll explain to you there's why this is a risk. Number one, she's Moabite. So there's a risk that if she goes out there, she's not going to be well-received. She's going to get the shunning and maybe, maybe invite molestation by the wrong type of character. And um, that is quite possible in this era because, remember, this happened in the time of the judges. And if you all have read Judges, there were some rather unsavory characters all over Israel at that time. So it's now guaranteed that you run out in these fields, you're going to run into the Boaz types. You might run into the bad types. So she's taking a risk of, I'm going out into a field. I don't know who they are. I'm a Moabite. They don't like me. But there's something else that she's going to take a risk on here. 
And first of all, to point that out, I want to show you there's, she's relying on some provisions in the law, in the Torah, that I'm sure she's heard of from Naomi. She knows something really special about Israel's culture that's probably not common elsewhere. And that is that there are actually two places in the law, in Leviticus 19.9 and Deuteronomy 24.19, where God commands the reapers to not go back and pick up what they left, leave it there for the poor and the sojourner. And Deuteronomy actually says the widow, and Ruth qualifies for all three though. She's poor, she's a sojourner from another land, and she's a widow. And it's like, oh, this covenant community has a special provision that I can go pick up, I can find some food that's left behind because God has commanded these people to leave it for me. So she's, I'm gonna run with that. I'm gonna go pick up the food that according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the godly ones should leave. Now, of course, she's in a, not everybody out there is godly and probably not everybody follows this rule, but certainly she'll find somebody who has, who's left stuff for her to pick up. So she's running out there, taking a risk. I'm gonna follow the law here. I'm gonna see, and notice, I think there's a clue here that she says, I will go and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's like, I'm, I'm looking for one who's gonna basically show me favor, because I kinda of know that there's a bunch that probably won't. But I'm looking for that one, that godly person who actually follows God's law and actually fears God and will actually have some grain on the ground that I can glean safely. I'm looking for the person who will, in whom I will find favor. And um, so she goes looking for this and then uh, other kind of skip, the, I'm skipping over the providence ideas. I'm just going with Ruth here. So verses 5 and 7, I'm going to skip forward to that. Once she meets Boaz, there's some descriptions of, of who she is and how she's going about this. She happens upon the field of Elimelech, and Boaz happens to show up. Happens. It doesn't say happens, but it's implied. It's another happenstance. Ooh, I wonder that was by chance. And and Boaz sees her, and he, he says to his young man in charge, in verse uh, 6, she's the young Moabite woman, got that culture right, she's that Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Actually, he's kind of quoting what 122 said, the last verse of chapter 1. It says, that's the Moabite, the one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, and he tells Boaz, this is what she's done since she showed up. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So clearly this young man has allowed her to work there. And we'll see why, probably why he did that shortly when we talk more about Boaz and his character. But she was looking for someone in whom she had, would find favor. Apparently this field is fair game for gleaning. But she did something 
Here's the other risk she took. She asked to gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now that's not what Deuteronomy and Leviticus commanded. If you read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those two sections there, that I, those two scriptures I quoted, it's like, don't go back after you're done for the day and try to clean up the rest. Leave it. So it's like the reapers come through, they leave some, and then the poor and the sojourners and the widows come out like almost after dark and pick up what they can when nobody's looking. She's saying, I want to I wanna follow the reapers. I want to be right there where they're fresh. I want to catch these sheaves as they fall. Now that's a little bit risky. That's, that's, that's the additional risk I'm alluding to. She's asking for more because she knows I'm not going to find enough grain to feed myself, let alone Naomi. I need more. So she's like, can I like kind of hang out with the reapers and as they fall, just keep, nah, that way I'll get a whole lot more. I'll, I'll be able to maybe feed not just me, but my mother-in-law. So she's taking a risk to go beyond the provisions of the law. And she's asking permission. Notice she's polite and she's, she's persistent. She stays there and just does what she's allowed to do, but she's asking for that, could I please work a little closer with your workers? Just a little? And the young man is describing that of her. And this speaks to several things about Ruth. It, there's a, uh, I guess I should say, there's, she, doesn't have, <laughs> she doesn't have an entitlement mentality, I'll say that much. God's law <coughs> said that that's for the poor, but she doesn't say, well, that, that's for me. That's mine. That's my right. She's like, she's still asking. She's asking for favor. She's humbly going about it. Because also, if you notice the law, the tone of the law isn't, it's not written to the poor. It's written to those who have the grain. They have the grain, and it's God saying, be generous. Basically, the the point of those two texts in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is you should be generous. You should be generous. Let the poor around you have your stuff. It's written to the, gener- to the, the landowners and the farmers saying be generous with your stuff. And Ruth is not demanding her rights like so many might do in our culture. She's humbly submitting to she's looking for that person who will follow the law and show her favor and apparently she's gotten some permission from this young man and she's been in this one field for quite a while when Boaz shows up and Boaz starts asking about her so that's what I mean by Ruth takes a risk she's she's going a little beyond what the law requires yet humbly asking to glean among the reapers because she needs more than just a few missed sheep. She needs to feed. She's, she's got her mother-in-law in mind. It's another thing about Naomi. She's do, she does everything for Naomi. The whole, that whole statement she said in chapter 1, your God will be my God, your people my people. I'm going to cling to you. It was I love you. I'm sticking with you. And here she's thinking about Naomi again. Like, ah, oh, Naomi, i got to feed her. i got to feed her. And that motivates her to take this risk to look for the right field where she can 
get close to the reapers and get more grain. Now, step back to providence. The providence happens in verse 3, and I'll include verse 4. I think both verse 3 and 4 are both evidences of God's providence. Verse 3, we already read that Ruth happened to come to the field of Boaz. And then, interestingly, in verse 4, Boaz shows up at his field at the same time, or shortly thereafter. And it doesn't say happened, but it's kind of a coincidence that that, if you think about it, it's like, why would Boaz happen to go to his field while Ruth is there? So there's a providence that Boaz shows up, comes from Bethlehem, it says, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, the town, because this is out of the town. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And a lot of commentators go, that's cute. Why did he put that in there? That doesn't have much to do with the story. But maybe it does. There's a reason for it. Here's one reason. It, it speaks to Boaz's character. He's a, as Piper would say, a God-saturated man. Saturated with the Lord. So, how many... <laughs> I, I, this little greeting here, this is actually a shorthand. It's, you don't find this a lot in Scripture, but it's a shorthand for that, the priestly blessing and numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord... I don't have it all memorized, but you know what I mean. You've heard it many, many times. He's kind of taking that into a little short phrase. The Lord be with you, and it's like meant to say all that other stuff. The Lord be with you, bless you, make his face shine upon you, grant you peace. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. He's kind of saying that. And, and then his workers respond in kind. The Lord bless you. So he's hired a bunch. He's He's hired a bunch of people who are like-minded. He's, he's, uh, he's an ideal employer is what he is. I don't know if too many employers, I've never worked for an employer that told me the Lord bless you every morning but, or the Lord be with you. This is pretty special. And, and another thing I was thinking about this thing is this is rare in Scripture. I don't even know if there's another place in Scripture where you have just people just working and the boss comes in and says, Lord be with you. You know, it's it's not a it's not a scene that we have captured elsewhere in scripture. The rest of scripture is more about the big priests and prophets and kings going to battle and that kind of stuff. This is just normal employee employer relationships. And it's a window into what a godly employer would do and think about his his employees. He's it's it's is demonstrating not only his trust in God, but there's a, that means he's submitted to God too. There's a humility in his leadership. It's like the Lord be with you. So Boaz's character, this statement in chapter in verse four is really really speaking to why the author called him a worthy man. In verse one, he's not just a worthy man, mighty man of valor. He's also a godly man. And the fact that it just happened. It's speaking to the fact he just shows up and he happens to see Ruth there and ask the man who is now his overlord, if you will. And now he might understand why that young man let her stay there because he's, he's godly too. He's like working for the God. It says, my boss would want this person 
because he follows, yeah, he fears God, so he would want her reaping. So, yes, you can stay. But the young man didn't have the authority to grant her permission anymore to go in with the reapers. That was out of his cognizance. So he doesn't. So she's, he says that she's been working diligently, but he doesn't say she's been with the reapers yet. She, she doesn't have permission to be with the reapers yet. She's doing around the edges, waiting patiently, persistently, working hard, because it says there she didn't even take a rest in the house. And actually, the, the Hebrew for that's kind of interesting. It's like, she's made this field her home. She doesn't even think about going home. She's like, she's really, she's persistent. She's staying here. She's not going back to Bethlehem. She's staying here waiting for you to come and grant her the permission that she's asking for, which is to reap closer to where the reapers are. Okay, so now verses 8 through 13. After hearing all this, this is, this is a beautiful section here. Boaz has been told who Ruth is. She's that Moabite who came back with Naomi. And she's persistently waiting for permission to work with the reapers. She's here working hard with what she can do, but waiting for you. So Boaz... He just starts talking to her. She doesn't, he doesn't introduce himself. He just goes off like this in a good way. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not, glean, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Wow, that, that was, uh, that sounds like an answer to prayer right there. That's what she's been looking for. But notice he grants her favor beyond her expectations. She was just looking for someone who would give her favor. And he's saying, yes, you'll have favor here, but stay here. And that word, stay close to my young women, is the same word that means cling in chapter 1. Cling to my young women, like you cling to Naomi. Glean by their side. Now, you wonder why the young women and the young men, what's the difference? Well, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but it's, if you think about it, it's, you can imagine. The young men are the ones swinging the sickles. Young women are the ones gathering up the sheaves and bundling them up. So it's like a double team effort. Young women are behind the young men who are cutting everything down, and then the young women are gathering it up. And he's saying, cling to them. Exactly. It's like that's even closer than she was expecting. She was just wanting to get close to these reapers. He's saying, cling to them and stay here. Be right by their side. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So he's providing bread, provision, and security. I told my young men, don't touch you. 
Don't even think about it. So my protection and provision. So suddenly here's the Lord providentially answering the prayer of Naomi in chapter 1 for Ruth already. It's starting to come to pass. I told you that. And when you were thirsty, go have your fill of the water that the young men drink. So basically, you're like one of my workers now. Almost. Not quite. You're still a gleaner, but come right in. Help yourself not just to the, to the grain. Help yourself to the water. And stay there and don't leave. Stay really close to the women who are now bundling the sheep. So what she's looking for is exactly what she was praying, taking a risk to go find, and God has provided. But her response in verse 10 is also commendable. How does she respond? She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's very humble. That's what I mean by she wasn't entitled. (laughs) She's like, wow, this is amazing. I'm a foreigner. I don't deserve this. She's aware of the fact she's not deserving. And a key word she says there is, why have you noticed me? That'll come up later. Why have you had regard for a foreigner like myself? Very humble, very humble. And then Boaz goes back, and this time he actually utters what you would call, what I would call a prayer, a prayer for her. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And here's the prayer. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's a very beautiful prayer. So he basically is blessing her and praying for her. He's he's telling her, I've been told what you've done, all you did for Naomi. That phrase, you left your father and mother to cling to her, that's actually the same exact phrase that's used in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife same phrase you've done that for Naomi as if you were like married to her you've just you left your father and mother and now you're clinging to her and I'm asking you to cling to my young women too now stay with me stay in this secure field to your heart's content if you will to your belly's content for sure and then the blessing he asked the Lord to reward her and he basically says it's a parallel. He says, may the Lord reward you twice or repay, as some translations say. I prefer the reward because um, God doesn't owe us anything. And everything that comes from God is a gift, right? He doesn't pay us what we deserve. He rewards us. He just gives us rewards. And the rewards are in response to our obedience to him. So there isn't a sense of a repayment. So repay is not wrong. I'm not saying scratch it. I'm just saying don't get to the point of thinking that Ruth has earned this. That's not been her thought process. She doesn't think she deserves it. And Boaz here is saying, what you did for Naomi, may God reward that. 
May God reward what you did. Self-sacrificial, lay yourself down to go to a place you don't know. The Lord reward you for that. He says it twice. And um, the under whose wings you have come to take refuge is quoted in Psalm 91.4, the shadow of God's wings, right? We've heard those psalms. You've come to take refuge under the shadow of his wings. And all these words that he's saying right now, I'll show that next week. A whole lot of these words are going to, the author cleverly uses them down the road. He uses them again. Like we've seen repeat words already, um, especially Moabite. That's one that's come up a bunch of times. And then last week there was return, return, return. They were repenting as they were coming back. A lot of these words are going to show up again. So he's like praying a prayer. And also it's obvious at the same time he's praying a prayer that the Lord reward her. But he's also answering the prayer at the same time by letting her stay here and get all the food she needs. So he's like the answer to her prayer as he's praying it. And that's, that's another interesting thing just to make note of in Ruth. God providentially moves, but he also providentially moves through his people. You know, we, all, we go to God and say, do something, do something. And then he says, well, serve that person. And you go serve that person. And then God used you to, you know, it's, he uses us. We are instruments of God's providence. And Boaz is that. And Ruth is that too. Ruth is being that for Naomi. She's coming in and, uh, going to get the food for Naomi, who's sitting back home. Either too bitter to come out on her own, or too old, or both. And Ruth is the answer to Naomi's prayer. And now Boaz is the answer to Ruth and Naomi's prayer. They pray it, yet God uses these people to accomplish his providence. And that's that's another thing we see throughout Ruth, and just bringing that out. You see that right now, that he's already started to reward Ruth with this happenstance meeting in a field in Bethlehem that has gone beyond what she could think or imagine to use the Apostle Paul's terminology in Ephesians two or Ephesians three. God's already blessing her more than she could imagine. So Boaz prays that under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That'll show up in chapter 3. And then Ruth responds. How does she respond once again? This time her gratitude is coming through. And she uses the word favor. Remember she went out to seek favor. She says, why have I found favor? So we're seeing a repeat of that word. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes. So I went out looking for this and I found favor in your eyes. My Lord, for you have comforted me spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants and the comfort word means you've allayed my fears I'm not I have no reason to be afraid now you've given me security you've secured me in this field so I'm comforted I'm but I'm also primarily I'm not fearful I'm not afraid of being molested or treated badly because of my race Moabite and you've spoken kindly to me which means reassuringly to me. And it's also used elsewhere in scripture as like, you're like wooing me. Like a little hint, hint, wink, wink. There's a little more going on here. There's this little underlying that author's being clever. It's like, 
thanks for providing my needs, but you're also, you're kind of coming on to me in a very godly way, is what would be a way to say it. And the, and the, the language that the author chose, he chose a word that has that double entendre. Kind of like, it's not just you're being kind to me, it's also like you're showing some interest in me that way. And I don't deserve it. Because I'm less than a maidservant. She says, I'm less than a servant, which is a maidservant. I'm not one of your servants. I don't work for you. I'm not even a servant. You're just showing this to a foreigner. I'm a foreigner. I don't deserve it. Extremely humble, extremely gracious. Not entitled in the least bit. Move on to verses 14. It continues to get better. So after this, at mealtime, Boaz says to her, Come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. That's interesting, bread and wine. There's the bread she's looking for. You don't even have to go home and beat it out. I've got some fresh baked for you right here. So the bread is coming to her unexpectedly. And then just the reference to bread and wine, you know, there's allusions there to other places in Scripture. I'll just leave it at that. So she, she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. That reminds me of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, similar, just stuff that comes down. There's all these illusions that you tie together when you read these things. It's like, oh, this happens again. Many thousand, 1,200 years later in a much bigger scheme, of course when Jesus is the one feeding the people. Some left over. So she's satisfied, totally, this is totally unexpected. She's got a lunch and she's got way more than she expected. She's satisfied. She's eating with Boaz and the reapers. And then when she rose to glean, Boaz instructs his young men saying, let her glean, this, Boaz is even getting more generous. Let her glean among the sheaves, exactly what she wanted to do, and do not reproach her, which is going beyond do not touch her, don't even speak against her. So he's taking it even further. Not just don't molest her, don't even speak against her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Purposely leave stuff for her. That's not a good business model. <laughs> so the, the blessings just keep coming and are getting stronger. It's like, okay, not only they're not going to touch me, they're not going to re- rebuke me, he says also. Don't rebuke her, don't reproach her, and let her work right there with you and pull stuff out for her. Purposely leave stuff on the ground for her. It's like, Wow. This is way, way beyond what she was expecting when she took the risk to go out to gather whatever she could find early this morning. The blessings are just, they're abundant. They're amazing. And then the sum total of it all, verse 17 and 18, kind of gives you a summary of what she does at the end of the day. So she gleaned in the field until evening, so she's still working really hard. She doesn't just sit back and go, score, I got, mm, I'm done. She's like, no, I'm going to gather. He's given me this provision. I'm going to go work hard. I'm going to get what he's got. 
And, and she does that, and it even says how much she gleaned. Keep losing my spot here. It was basically an epa, an epa. That, that rings a bell, right? We all know what an epa is. Not really. If you look at your footnote, it says about 22 liters. Or for those of us who don't know what liters are, six gallons. Six gallons of barley. You ever bring in six gallons of water from the grocery store? It's a lot. It takes a few trips. And imagine how she carried how she all that. She's got six gallons of barley and she's got her leftover lunch. She, she took home to mama. So her reward, she's got the reward of provision has started to come big time. Remember, she needs, they need provision and they need security. She's also got security. He's a safe place to do this. And she's got way more than she needs and Naomi needs at this point. So when she comes home in verse 19, you bet Naomi is going to be surprised. <laughs> and her mother-in-law said to her, well, basically before I get there, let's read 18 because it's kind of sweet. She took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. There it is. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Here's, here's lunch. And not only lunch, there's eight gallons of barley here too. And Naomi's like, wow. And it says in verse 19, where did you glean today and where have you worked? And before she gives her a chance to answer, she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And there's that word notice that she used earlier when she said to Boaz, oh, you've noticed me. She says, obviously somebody noticed you. There's no way you could come back with eight gallons of barley unless you found favor and somebody took notice of you. Because this is, and actually she did glean eight gallons because Boaz made it easy for her. Dumped it all on the ground and picking it up all day long. But it's just like, obviously. So whoever it is, whoever this person is, blessed be him. He, let God bless this man. That he's, wow, we've got, I wasn't, that's amazing. That's, that's what 19 is saying. And she's asking, who, who was it? And she says, blessed, whoever he is, bless him. And then she's, when Naomi calms down and she can get a word in, she says, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and I like the slow play of the way he writes this. It's just the beauty of the way this author writes. He's like, oh, what's his name? What's his name? What's his name? And I notice at the very end, he shouldn't say the name till the very last. The author says, Boaz, at the very end there. End of 19. What's his name? The man with whom I worked. Let's see. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, at the very end. Boaz. And all of a sudden in verse 20, Naomi says something that this this verse is probably the key verse of Ruth, actually. She she is completely changed. The name Boaz in the sight of this barley has completely changed her outlook. Remember how bitter she was in chapter one? 
That this verse does not sound like that Naomi. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's not what she was saying in chapter 1. His kindness had forsaken me. He has not, the Lord has not forsaken, she's talking, the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead. His kindness has not forsaken. And that word kindness was the same kindness that was in chapter 1 when she prayed for the girls. It's that chesed, steadfast love word again. God's steadfast love has not departed. Now, in chapter 1, she thought it had. She thought, he has no steadfast love for me. And now she's saying, blessed be the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. Kind of. She's like, she's a totally different, she's saying exactly not what she was saying in chapter 1. It's, a, it's an opposite. And it all happened in a moment when Boaz ate gallons of barley Blessed be the Lord who's has said, steadfast love has not forsaken the living or the dead. And that's why I say this is the key verse of Ruth. That actually sums up God's activity in the whole book right there. Because that's what he does through the whole book. His steadfast love doesn't forsake the living and the dead. From chapter 1 all the way to the end. So, Naomi gets it exactly right in this moment and something huge has changed in her in her heart she also says it's not the end of it that's the most important part but she also says to her to Ruth the man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers which will come into play in chapters 3 and 4 big time that's why Ruth 220 is this is this is the, the whole book hinges on What's said right here? God's providence, his steadfast love, has not forsaken Naomi. It has not. And then she explains to Ruth, oh, by the way, here's why, here's why. Because Boaz is a close relative and a redeemer, which will come into play next week, as I said, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. What's happened to Naomi? What's changed? I would say she has hope. Said so Naomi finds a future and a hope. She had no hope in chapter one. That was the difference. She had no future. She could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. And she was bitter. Now everything changes because she sees that Boaz. Oh, I see it now. I have hope. She's got hope now. There's a future for her. Well, especially a future for Ruth. I think she sees it for Ruth before she sees it for her. It's like, oh, yeah. Boaz. Uh-huh. She's got hope. She didn't have hope. Now she has hope. The mention of Boaz at the end of verse 19 changes everything for her. The Lord is suddenly now steadfastly loving her. It wasn't before. I was just reading my notes. You can compare that to her prayer in Ruth 1.8. In fact, I'll do that right now. Here's what she said in Ruth 1.8. Boaz said to Ruth, 
Now listen, my daughter. No, that's Ruth 2, sorry. 1-8, not 2-8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law at the time, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That's the Hesed word, the steadfast love. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, and the Lord grant that you may find rest, each one of you in the house of her husband. So her prayer was for this chesed and this rest. And here she's like, the Lord's provided it. Here it is. At least the, the chesed part. And she's got hope that this, the rest is coming. That the, the security is going to come. That's going to come too because Boaz is a close relative and a redeemer. And that, in her, to her that makes a lot of sense. Ruth is probably going... Yeah, so, you know, she doesn't, maybe Ruth doesn't know that yet, but well, Naomi knows. That's, that's the key to the security part, which we'll leave for next week, because that's what next week's all about, chapter 3. But anyway, comparing what, that's just comparing her prayer in 1.8 to her statement in 2.20. And then the other thing to compare was, I won't read this again, but the bitter statements of, 1, 20, and 21 compared to this is anything but bitter. This is joyful, hopeful. And she was extremely bitter in chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. She has hope. She has a bright future. Boaz brings hope of the long-term provision and security. Why? Because he's a relative, a close relative, it says here, who can bring the security of marriage to Ruth, which Ruth may not understand just yet as as is going to become obvious in the next few verses. She's not quite, she doesn't quite know what Naomi is saying here. He's a relative, and he's a redeemer. And the redeemer is the one who actually buys back the property, gets us the inheritance, and that's, that's what's going to be the key in chapters 3 and 4, is the relative and redeemer is going to, of Boaz is going to come out and do this. So Naomi sees that Ruth, and she also, I think, there's a clue here. She also now sees Ruth no longer as a burden, but as a blessing. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're not the burden I thought you were. And part of the clue there is when she says, he is our close relative and our redeemer, meaning you're part of the family. <laughs> you're like, you, you are not, not a burden to me. You're not just a daughter-in-law. You're now, you, you, we're in this together. He's your redeemer, your relative as well. So Naomi not only sees Boaz as, uh, as a means of provision and security, she's starting to sense that Ruth is too. Obviously, just Ruth just brought all this home. And then verses 21, 23 to close it out. This is where it's kind of cute that Ruth... Um, Ruth is seeing it a little differently and she has to be corrected. Let me get to 2 again. 221 through 23. Ruth the Moabite, once again, she's called a Moabite, the author saying she's still thinking like a Moabite. She's not totally out of it yet. Said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Boaz didn't say that. He said, keep close to my young women. If you look at verse 10, I think it's 10. So she's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of young eligible bachelors here. And he said, I could keep close to them. 
which he really didn't say. He's like, and she uses the word cling, by the way. Cling to his young men. No, no, no. And then the next verse, Naomi kind of corrects her. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Stick by the women, not the men. I mean, you may think one of those young men is husband material, but I got somebody better in mind that I'll tell you about next chapter. So she kept, she obeys, she kept close, she clung once again to the young women, this is Ruth, obeying her mother-in-law, and she gleaned until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So she humbly obeyed her mother-in-law and clung to the young women instead. The setup, once again, set up, oh, there's something coming here. So I guess it's time to go to the service pretty soon. Um, let me summarize really quickly some things, some thoughts. Clearly, God has providentially secured and provided for both widows through ordinary means, just happened at work, through ordinary but very godly people, Boaz and Ruth. Ruth has been rewarded for taking much risk, step, which is what I mean by risk is she's stepping out in faith, she's acting on her faith by leaving her culture behind and also asking to glean among the reapers. Naomi's bitterness has now evaporated as she gains hope for the future. She has a promise of entering God's rest. I just use a quote from Hebrews 4.9. There's a, be diligent therefore to enter God's rest. She's thinking that she's got this promise of rest, security, that she's going to press on towards. And that will actually be the key word. Rest is going to show up in the very next verse. My daughter-in-law, should I not seek rest for you? That's chapter 3, verse 1. All right. Have to bring it to a close here. So uh, I'll pray and we'll go to the service. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this gift of the book of Ruth. Please bless your people as they ponder these words and Look at your providence from years ago and, and recognize that these, this providence is still at work today. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Please bless us, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim.